Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this. Just to give you a bit of a heads up, we're going to deal with the first two parts of the question today. Slide. Hello. Oh, it's a bit of a worry when you look up at the desk and there's nobody there. <laughs> Just because I've got the clicker doesn't mean that you don't need to have started the slide deck. <sighs> Here we go. There we go. So, the Bible, what is it, how did we get it, and why does it matter? Today I'm going to look at the what is it and how did we get it. Next week we'll look at the why does it matter. So you're going to have to come back next week. Uh, and I feel sorry for the people that aren't here today because they're going to be missing all of the juicy stuff from today that you're going to get. So where are we going to start? Bit of a confession. I am a full-on history nerd. Those of you that have talked with me for more than five minutes will probably have worked that out. Um, I get excited by watching shows about archaeology. Um, when I was a young teenager, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And then I realised that I probably couldn't make a living out of doing that. <laughs> it's like, let's get a job that's going to pay. Um, so... Um, I used to subscribe. This is a 12 or 13-year-old, okay? Now, most 12 or 13-year-olds are going to subscribe to, I don't know what sort of magazines. I subscribed to a magazine called Buried History. Uh, it was produced by the Australian Institute of Archaeology, which was a Christian-based archaeology organisation based in Melbourne. Um, they used to be based in the city. They're now based out at La Trobe. They're still going. Um, for teachers, a tip for teachers here, and I've had, had this argument when I used to work at a school, had this discussion, sorry, it wasn't really an argument, because it didn't get anywhere. But, um, and that is, if you want to integrate science, history, biblical studies all together, archaeology is the way to do it. Because you've got to think about all of those things. Um, so it's a really, really, you know, key method of being able to tie things together. One of the things I liked about the Australian Institute of Archaeology and, and the, the magazine, little magazine that they produced, and I've still got them, which is a bit sad, no. We're talking 50 years ago, and they're still at home, in a box. Pull them out every now and then. Um, is that they tied archaeological discoveries in with the Bible, and they did it in a way that honoured both the science and the Bible. Um, I'll never forget, probably one of the biggest aha moments was they, they did an, a, a special edition looking at the plagues described in the book of Exodus, which I had, you know, as a 12, 13-year-old, and I'm sure as many of you have, just seen them as a random series of events. Uh, no, it was just a whole lot of bad stuff that happened to the Egyptians because they didn't let God's people go. Well, this particular edition spent its whole time looking at basically how each one of the plagues dismantled a section of the Egyptian religious system. And the whole point of most of the plagues was pointing to the Egyptian gods and going, nah, 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 nah. Um, to the culmination of where the next god king, the son of Pharaoh, was killed. 
So it, was, it wasn't just a series of random events. It was like a very, very intentional attack on their religious system. Uh, it instilled in me a, not only a passion for history uh, and a willingness to wrestle with science and, and scripture, um, but also built into me uh, the ability to be able to hold things in tension and to not need to have a black and white answer for everything. Because a lot of the time you don't get black and white answers for everything. Uh, which I know frustrates a lot of people about me because it's like people go, well, what's the answer here? And I go, yeah. Could be this, could be this, could be this. Let me talk, a bit, talk to you about the different theories that could be involved here. And that's, some people need to have, no, just tell me what's right, tell me what's wrong. Christianity is not like that, unfortunately. You've got to trust God and walk with him. History's a funny thing. This is the history nerd in me coming out. We base our study, we base our understanding on the stuff that we know. Um, often without questioning. I'll give you an example. And the older members of the, uh, the people that are here will have remembered studying this at school because, no, when, when you were a kid in Australia in the 60s, you studied English history. Minuscule amounts of Australian history, no. Australian history after eight, no, 1788. Um, but what you did was you went all the way back and you studied British history. And it's like, okay, that's just not much fun. But one of the things that they used to teach you was about the whole idea that the Anglo-Saxons came across from Europe and plundered and pillaged their way through England and took over England. And that was based on the writings of a particular guy that was written about 200 years after it happened. A gentleman called, gentleman known as the Venerable Bede. <laughs> um, you, got, you, know you, got, you know you're impressive when you get given the epithet Venerable. That whole theory has now largely been discredited because, frankly, the DNA evidence doesn't stack up. There couldn't have been, there wouldn't have been enough Anglo-Saxons coming across to make it a viable option. So they've kind of like, well, what happened? Well, it's probably more of a gradual cultural assimilation rather than an invasion as such. Same thing happens. Um, another example from English history the invasion of England by the Romans, 43 AD. That was written about by an historian about 180 years later. That's the, that's the oldest record we have of the Romans invading England and what happened. So now, archaeologists in, in the UK will go, well, we think they could have landed here and we think they could have landed here or they could have landed here. They haven't been able to find any evidence of where they landed. But, no, it's taught as history because, hey, some guy 180 years later decided that was what was going to be written. And you sit there and go, well, that's... No. 
that's there. The interesting thing is, you look at the Bible, the oldest section of scripture of the New Testament that we have was written about 40 years after the original. So compared to the 180 years that is accepted as fact, we've got a 40-year window. I think we can be relatively confident around that. Now, there are historical events, people, nations that are mentioned in the Bible that have zero archaeological evidence. Uh, and that's why a lot of people dismiss the biblical account as not being reliable. It's like, well, where's your proof? Um, and this has been the case probably for the last 200 years. Since the 1800s, the Enlightenment and people going, oh, no, we need evidence, we need proof, we need science to back up what the Bible says. We can't just trust the Bible. And I'm sure those of you that have got unsaved friends have probably had conversations along those lines with those people, with, with, with unsaved people that you know going, oh, in a Bible, why would you listen to a book that's 2,000 years old? No, you can't trust that. It's all been distorted. It's like, well, let's look at that. And hopefully by the end of today, you'll have a lot more confidence. Give you an example, two examples of things that changed during the 1800s. The Bible talks a lot about a group of people, a nation called the Hittites. And during the 1800s, historians were absolutely, categorically, 100% certain that the Hittites were a myth. They did not exist because there was no evidence. And then in the mid to late 1800s, well, they found its capital, they found a massive library, and all of a sudden it was like, yeah, well, the Hittites may have, yeah, they did exist. Another example. In Isaiah 20, verse 1, he's only mentioned the once, one verse, an Assyrian king called Sargon, Sargon the Great. And he was clearly a myth because there was no evidence of him anywhere in the archaeological record. And then they found his palace. So the historians sort of quickly do a bit of a backtrack and go, okay, maybe he did exist. And that's the thing. We don't have a complete historical record. We don't have a complete archaeological record. And things that people might go, oh, that's a myth, there's no proof, could be one discovery away. Now, the flip side of that, and this is really hard to say, is that Christians have got a track record of making stuff up. <laughs> because they want the proof. And if you can't find the proof, well, the next best thing is to make it up. Anybody see the problem with that? Yeah, I do. It's called lying. Bible's pretty clear on that one. But it's just, it's like, come on. You don't have to make it up. You can just trust God. But there's been a whole lot of frauds and stuff. No, no. It, it happened during the Middle Ages where, you know, churches liked having relics because relics had spiritual power and they would tell people, no, come, pray, touch the relic and you'll be healed. So there was something like, you no, know, 39 nails 
from the crucifixion of Christ. That's like, that's seriously bad carpentry. That's the sort of no. If I was nailing Jesus to the cross, it would probably take me 39 nails to get it right. But the Romans were pretty good at it because they had lots of practice. It's like, so they just made stuff up. No? No? Another, another classic example is there was a story that would again developed during the late 1800s um, that there was a gate into Jerusalem called the Eye of a Needle. Anybody, who's, who's heard of the story of the gate about, called the Eye of a Needle? And, and the fact that, you know, for, for camels to get through the eye of the needle, they needed to get on their knees and they needed to take all their baggage off because it was such a small gate. And they, 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 no. So when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he was talking about that. It's like, no, he wasn't. No, my paraphrase of that, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. If you want to put it in a context that Australians will understand, it's as easier to drive a Mack truck through the neck of a stubby. Okay, most Australians have got a visual picture now of what, I'm, what Jesus was talking about. Here's a really, really big thing trying to get through a really, really small thing. There is absolutely zero historical or archaeological evidence of a gate called the Ivan Needle prior to 1880. And then all of a sudden it popped up in a sermon. Some guy just made it up because it suited his agenda. So you've got to undo some of that when you're talking with people. And it's just hard gets in the way. So, our beliefs are formed by a combination of four factors. What we believe. There are four things that affect it. Scripture, what we're looking at today. Tradition and teaching, the things we get taught. Reason, no, logic. And experience, what we've experienced. One of the funniest stories was talking with a, that had in this area, was talking with a guy who, because of the Christian heritage that he grew up in, was absolutely anti speaking in tongues. Now, he was absolutely convinced it was no longer appropriate for today, and that was his, that was the tradition that he grew up in. And one day he was praying, earnestly seeking God, and he just started speaking in tongues. He's gone, I may have to reevaluate my tradition and teaching. <laughs> in light of my experience, I might need to adjust. And that's, that, and that's the thing, is that all four. Now, so scripture, what we understand the Bible is saying, and this applies to other religious frameworks as well of whatever your holy the holy text say what our family our church our upbringing significant people have passed on to us what we've been taught to believe now 65 years ago that was largely the domain of the church now schools social media the education system and social media are where most people get their teaching what to believe 
reason, the application of logic and evidence to the other three factors and experiences, how we've experienced and how we've interpreted those experiences based on the other three things. Our worldview will alter how much emphasis we give to each of these four points and the sequence we process them. Now, a humanistic worldview, secular humanism is going to start with reason and if it doesn't pass the reason test, then you can ignore the rest of it. Christian worldview is going to go, we're going to start with scripture and then we're going to apply the other tests to that. So why am I talking about this? Because if we want to understand what we believe, if we want to understand the Bible and we want to be able to trust what we read in the Bible along with our faith, we need to develop an understanding of three things. Culture. What's the culture within which the Bible was written and how is it different to our own? The historical context within which it was written and how that differs from now. And the languages of the Bible and the impact that translation has had on what we read. We are, generally speaking, every now and then I meet somebody who comes along to church with their Greek New Testament. Wow, that's keen. Um, generally speaking, people aren't going to be reading the Bible in the language in which it was written. And even if we are reading the New Testament in Greek, when we're reading the stuff that Jesus said in the Gospels, we're not reading it in the language that he said it. Because Jesus didn't say it in Greek, he said it in Aramaic. Because that was the language of the people. So there was a translation from the Greek from the Aramaic to the Greek um, along the way. We need to recognise the Bible does not even... (laughs) The Bible doesn't encourage us to read the Bible. Anybody realise that? Nowhere does it say you should read your Bible. What does it tell you to do? Study. To show yourself approved. What did Jesus condemn the Pharisees for? Pharisees had memorized massive chunks of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't go, well done. He's gone, yeah, you've done that, but you actually don't get it. You don't understand it. You're leaving big bits out because they don't suit your agenda. They don't make you feel comfortable. Now, a classic example is in Luke, when, he says to the, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you tithe on the minutest of the herbs in your garden, but you've forgotten about mercy and the love of God. You should have done the first bit. You should have done the tithing bit. Don't mishear me but not at the expense of mercy and compassion. Now, what did Jesus do when the Pharisees went to him and complained about the way his disciples were acting? He said, well, hang on, 
Haven't you read this? No, David did this. So, I'm sorry, you're not looking at the full picture. And we do that. We have a real tendency to find a verse and we want to hang our hat on that verse and go, yes, that's all that matters. And in the process of doing that, we ignore a whole bunch of other evidence in Scripture that actually might not fit. That just makes it really, really hard for us to have an impact on people who are trying, who aren't necessarily the same place in their faith walk as us and are trying to wrestle through understanding scripture and go, well, what about this and what about this? If we choose to ignore bits, then you know, we, we can leave ourselves open to accusations of manipulating the word of God. But we also, one last bit here. We need to also recognise that God revealed himself progressively throughout scripture. So just because we read it in Leviticus doesn't mean that it applies to us today. Otherwise I'm in huge trouble for having bacon and eggs. And there's a whole bunch of you here today that are in trouble because you're ladies and you're wearing pants. And the rest of you are in trouble because you are wearing clothes that are made of two fibres. No. If you're wearing anything that's made out of polycotton or cotton and spandex, if you've got stretch, stretch pants on, like these ones, you are breaking the Levitical law. No, most of us aren't going to have had to wrestle with the, oh no, we've planted two different crops in our field. I don't know where that leaves you if you've got a veggie patch. But you sit there and go, you could get really, really hung up on that. Or you could go, you know what, when Jesus on the cross said it is finished, he dealt with that stuff. He dealt with the need to focus just on obeying the Levitical law and he shifted the focus to mercy and the love of God. And the New Testament writers after Jesus continued to emphasise that. We can become really, really legalistic and miss the point of what God is trying to say to the communities in which we find ourselves. God revealed himself progressively. Even the books in the Old Testament that were written after the Babylonian exile reveal a deeper understanding of God and a different understanding of the spiritual realm in general. 
You realize the majority of the references in the Old Testament to Satan only occur in books written after the Babylonian exile? They didn't really have an idea of, uh, hey, there's there's a bad guy out there until they went to Babylon, which was all about the bad guy out there, and gone, eh, yeah, we might have to think about that a bit more. The exception to Job, and I could talk about that for a long time, but I won't. Okay, so, let's look at the Bible. Oh, yes, yes, sorry. have to show this slide. It took my wife ages to make this slide. <laughs> we focus on reading. Make sure that, yes, we've ticked that box. We've read the Bible today. We've done our Bible reading for today. If all you're doing is reading the Bible, have you wrestled with it? Have Have you grappled with understanding what it is saying? Have you allowed it to ask you questions about how you do life, how you relate to others, how you process. I mean, as part of the SOAP program that many of the church are doing still, including me, we're reading Job on the weekends, because, hey, why not? And it's a real challenge. How would I have responded in Job's shoes? Everything that defined me as a man. For Job, everything that defined Job as a man was taken away from him. His wealth, his family, his status in the community, all gone. And he had three great friends who came along and said, you must have some secret sin in your life. You need friends like that. If only to practice your head-butting. And I won't give it away because the end, you know, don't, don't want to get too far ahead. I know some people have read through to the end because it's like, oh, I need to find out what's going on here. I'll give, you, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the key. The key in Job is very, very simple. God's gone, I made you, that's enough. Anything else above that is a bonus. So, and, and God makes his statement to Job twice. He says, stand up, basically pull up your pants and talk to me like a man. Don't sit near me, you man, and complain. God says, no, who is it that darkens my words? Darkens my presence with words without understanding. Stand up, gird your loins, and talk to me like a man. I've made you, and that's enough. You don't understand everything. All you need to understand is you were created by God, and you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs. That's it. And sometimes we've just got to be happy with that. That's a really hard message to process. 
But it's where it is. Okay. So what's the Bible? Oh, no, leave it. Gosh. Okay. So, what is the Bible? Well, the appropriate question to that is which Bible are you talking about? If you're talking about the Protestant Bible, which most of us would be, you're talking about 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament and that's 66 books altogether. However, if you're talking to a Catholic, they've got a bunch of other books. They have 73 books and two more in an appendix, so 73 or 75, depending on whether you count the two that are in the appendix. If you're talking to the Greek Orthodox, people that built this building, they've got 79 books with another one in an appendix. If you're talking to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, they've got between 81 and 89, depending on who you ask. So, we look at this and go, yep, they're the books of the Bible. There's a whole bunch of people, Christians, who go, well, we actually count some others. They count them, but they don't necessarily give them the same weight as these ones. Those books are referred to generally as the Apocrypha, which just is a fancy Latin word for hidden. And that doesn't mean that they're secret. It just means that they're put to one side because they're not as authoritative. The other thing about the Bible, and I like this little graphic because it puts them in different colours, is you've got different types of writing. You've got historical books in there. So all the blue ones there, from, from Joshua all the way through to Esther, they're the historical books. Um, the purple ones, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are a mixture of poetry and what's called wisdom literature. No? And some of, some of them you sit there and go, this sounds like the stuff that used to be written on the bottom of desk calendars. Uh, memorable sayings to help you live your life. But others are like, no. Some of it's more complex. No? It's, the history is warts and all. <laughs> it's like, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a sanitised history. It's a... His history and his where it's like. You look at some of the New Testament history. Um, book of Acts. Seriously, if I was writing the book of Acts, there's a whole lot of stuff I would have left out because it makes them look really bad. It's like, no, let's just make them look better. This is, the, this, this is going to be the inspiration for starting the church. And they're like, no, nah, let's put it warts and all there because that encourages us when we read it to go, hey... You can be an absolute idiot and still be a good Christian and still make a difference. And a lot of them were absolute idiots. <laughs> Jesus said that to his disciples at times. Now, are you still so thick? That's essentially what Jesus said several times to the disciples, that you don't get it yet. usually to Peter. And you sit there and go, Peter has had a huge impact on the Christian church. No, 
There's a reason why they, the crowds looked at the disciples and go, these are unlearned people. It's like, yep. You don't have to be an academic to impact the world. You've just got to have a passion and a heart for God. No, there's poetry, including love songs. Song of Solomon's beautiful love song that people get really, really uncomfortable with. So they try and make it about Jesus and the church. And it's like it wasn't written about Jesus and the church. It was written about physical relationships between men and women. You've got prophecy, and a lot of the prophecy was written in poetic form. Why saying letters? And the letters that are written, no, one's in blue on the bottom shelf, and the majority of the ones at the end read there. They were letters written, some of them really, really personal letters, some of them more instructive. And you sit there and go, well, no. Are we going to treat the letters the same way as we're going to treat the poetry? No, there's a little thing called poetic license. People use things in, say things in poetic language. There is an overarching purpose in the Bible, though. Regardless of which books you've put, you've encountered in there, and which ones aren't, which translation it is, whether it's got pictures or not, the overarching message of the Bible is to document his relationships with his covenant people. Whether it was Israel, whether it's a church, the Bible is about how God interacts with his people. And that doesn't necessarily resonate with us as 21st century Westerners. It resonates... We, it resonated with people in the ancient Middle East who were dealing with that. Can you push the button, Max? There we go. Second Timothy three sixteen. says, God's breath permeates all scripture, making it valuable for doctrine, for censure, for correction and for discipline in righteousness. Its purpose is that the man of God might be fully qualified, equipped for every good work. Why do we have the Bible? To equip us, to train us, to correct us. And I don't know, I don't know. I just find that a lot of the time I struggle to allow the Bible to correct me. Anybody else in that boat? <laughs> I like it to encourage me. Not to whack me around the head with a wet fish. Which is how it feels sometimes. We need to allow... The word of God. I like, this, I like this particular translation. A lot of the translations say God's, no, all scripture is God breathed. Which makes it sound like he dictated it and that's certainly not the case. 
That's for next week. Okay, I am way over time. I want to touch on a couple of things very quickly. There's two ways we can look at how we got the Bible. We can take the Stephen Covey approach or we can take the Rogers and Hammerstein Sound of Music approach. Okay, you're sitting there going, okay, he has now lost it completely. The Stephen Covey approach is start with the end in mind. So you start at the end and work backwards. Sound of Music approach is start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. I'm a show tunes sort of guy, as you can probably tell, because I talk with my hands. I'm a show tunes sort of guy. I'm going to go with the Rogers and Hammerstein approach and start at the very beginning. How did scripture start? It started like this. People telling stories. We've got a set of video, a second set of DVDs. No, they're not DVDs. They're videotapes, aren't they? VHS tapes. They're available on, you, you can find them on YouTube, of a series of kids' cartoons called The Story Keepers. Really, really liked them for my kids when they were growing up because it actually gives them an idea of how the Gospels started, which was storytellers saying, here's the stuff that Jesus did, and passing it on to others. And then eventually, it was all gathered together. Luke talks about this at the beginning of Luke. He says, I've talked to a whole bunch of people, and I've pulled it together in a logical Greek sort of chronological sequence, so that you, dear Theophilus, can rely on what's been written. So that's what happened. It was, they, were, they started off as oral stories. You sit there and you look at, no, Genesis and Exodus. They started as oral histories. They weren't, no. Moses wasn't taking notes as he went along. Make sure you write this down. This is really good. Again, no, he probably would have left stuff out. If you're going to sanitize things, no. You're going, to, you're going to leave stuff out. The Bible was gathered together. I'm sure many of you have you know, seen stuff on the internet or had people, friends make comments about, no, it was all organised by the Catholic Church. Well, the Catholic Church didn't exist per se when the books of the Bible were sort of formalised. And it wasn't done by Constantine, the emperor. He didn't go, okay, I want you to do this. It was done because the church said, agreed that these are the books that should be included. So all the church leaders getting together and going, okay. There. In the 400s, a guy called Josephus, not, not Josephus, a guy called Jerome, sort of, translated the Greek and the Hebrew into Latin, and for a thousand years that was the only Bible that most of Europe had. Um, since then, you know, the 1800s, they found a whole lot of major copies written in the 300s that give us the Bible um, and that show that what we've got is quite accurate from, from that date. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1946-1947. 
complete scrolls of Deuteronomy and Isaiah that are almost word for word the same as what we've got today. So we can trust that there. But how did we get the English Bibles that we've got now? Well, there are a couple of guys who I will touch on very briefly. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) sorry, I had to put that one in there. Listen carefully, I don't want to end up with four different versions. The reason we have four different Gospels is because they were written to different audiences. And so they focus on different things. Um, It was formulated because there was a guy called Marcion back in the the mid-second century who decided that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were so different that they can't be the same God. So he developed his own Bible which was the Gospel of Luke with all the, bits, all the references to the Old Testament stuff removed. Some of Paul's letters with a whole lot of stuff removed and that was about it. Um, and the church has gone, we probably need to actually sort this out. So they started formulating scripture. Now, things like the Gospel of Thomas, which gets an amazing amount of publicity, an amazing amount of uncritical publicity, If the people that are handing out the communion stuff could be handing that out, that would be great as well. Two gentlemen I want to to focus on, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. They're both very serious-looking gentlemen. John Wycliffe... um, well before the Reformation, had decided people needed to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And so he translated it. Um, They didn't like that. After he died, they exhumed his body and then burnt it at the stake and then scattered the ashes in the river. I can't remember which river it was that they scattered it in. You sit there and go, wow, that's just nasty and vengeful. William Tyndale, on the other hand, translated the Bible into English um, in the 1500s, and uh, he was strangled and then burnt at the stake for his troubles. And we don't, rec- we, we, we don't appreciate that as much as I think we should. The reason we've got a Bible in English that we can read is because people gave their life to do it to make sure that we had it because they recognise that the only way that we can live a godly life is if we've got scripture there that we can read and understand. And so it's important for us to, rec- to, to recognise that. No? Oh. Thank you very much. No, after after Tyndale did his translation of the Bible, which was done from Greek and Hebrew manuscripts rather than from the Latin version that Jerome did, there was a number of other translations of the Bible that's done. The Great Bible of 1539, the Geneva Bible that was produced over a three-year period from 57 to 60, and the Bishop's Bible in 1568. Now, one of the... One of the Bibles is not here today, so I can say this and it's not going to embarrass him. In 1560, the Bishop's Bible was produced by a bunch of English bishops, one of whom 
It was a gentleman by the name of William Alley who was the Bishop of Exeter. And uh, Dan Alley, who's in our church, is a descendant of William Alley who helped produce the Bishop's Bible. There you go. Maybe he should have been up here talking about it. Um, as part of the union of England and Scotland, we have King James I and VI. So he was King James I of England and King James VI of Scotland. Um, he produced the King James Version of the Bible because he wanted something that could be used across both countries. And they had different versions of the Bible. So he produced a version that was largely politically motivated in 2011, there was a brilliant documentary. I encourage people to read it. It's called When God Spoke English. Um, and it, it, it's about the, translation, the whole translation of the King James Version of the Bible. The guy that's presenting it is not a Christian, but he loves the King James Version of the Bible. Um, but yeah, he gives, he gives some really interesting insights into the, um, into the people that were doing the translating and what else they were working on at the time, which I find, found fascinating. Sorry, history nerd coming out again. Um, King James Version became the, again, for about 300 years, became the only version that people used. And for a lot of people, for some reason, it's the only true version. Yeah. There are, there, are, there are church groups that go, no, it has to be the King James Version of the Bible. It's like, well, yeah, but there were documents discovered in the 1800s, as I said, that really much more credible sources that weren't available when that was done. Okay, rush through that last bit. I'm going to recap some of this stuff next week. Exercise for the week. What I would like you to do Read one chapter. I don't care which chapter it is. Pick a chapter and read it in five or six different translations. And it's easy to find them online. Okay? If you're having trouble finding different versions online, uh, what's it called? Bible Gateway is probably the best one to use. So just Google Bible Gateway. It'll come up with a whole bunch of different translations you can use. Find five or six different translations, and then work out which you find the easiest to read and which you prefer, may not be the same thing, and why. And I'd like you to discuss that in your life groups, because uh, that will be uh, give you an idea of, of, of what impact the translation we're reading has on what we, how we understand the Bible. So with communion, what I would like to do, everybody got their communion stuff now? minutes. We've got the Bible. People devoted their lives. Jerome spent 27 years living in a cave translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. That's devotion. He was getting paid for it, but still. People have given their lives to get the Bible to us in a form that we can read because I'm pretty sure none of us would be overly keen on reading it in Latin. Um, and I'm very grateful to Messrs. Tyndall and Wycliffe for producing it in English for us. Mind you, trying to read Wycliffe's version is in Middle English, so it is really, really hard to read anyway. <laughs> um, we have an obligation 
to not just read the Bible, but to study it and wrestle with it so that we can understand it. No, we have an obligation to honour the God who permeates it all and to honour the lives of those who've enabled us to have it so we can not just read it but to study it and understand it. And to, we have an obligation to allow it to encourage us, to correct us, to rebuke us and to train us. So when we take the biscuit and the grape juice. Let us remember not only the work that Christ did on the cross that allows us to access the life that comes from him, but also to remember those that have enabled us to have the Bible in a a format that allows us to wrestle it through and understand it.